0: The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at Emmanueltuscaloosa.org. 2 Samuel 20, starting in verse
1: 1, says this, Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David. And we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for his house and put them in his house under guard, and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days, and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. And David said to Abishai, now Sheba, the son of Bikri will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out from him Joab's men and the Carathites and the Pelathites and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bikri. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet him. Meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath, fastened to his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand, so Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri, and one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway, and anyone who came by seeing him stopped. And when the man saw that all the people saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bikri. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of beth And all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of beth They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab. Come here that I may speak to you. And he came near her. And the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I'm listening. Then she said, They used to say in a former times, Let them, be, let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled the matter. I am one of those "'who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. "'You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. "'Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord?' "'Joab answered, "'Far be it from me, far be it, "'that I should swallow up or destroy.' "'That is not true. "'But a man of the hill country of Ephraim, "'called Sheba, the son of Bichri, "'has lifted up his hand against King David.' Give him up alone, give up him alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city every man to his home. And Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Karakhthites and the Pelathites, and Adoram was in charge of the forced labor, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ehilud, was the recorder, and Shiva was secretary, and Zadok and Abiathar were priests, and Ira, the Jerite, was also David's priest." I want to ask I already
0: know the answer, but I'll ask anyways. does this world and all the brokenness that exists in it, does it ever leave you feeling just worn down? Do you ever feel just weary? I mean, you think about all the things that go on in this world. There's wars, there's suffering. All over the world, there's tragedies of all sorts of different stripes, natural disasters, accidents. But then, of course, there are the things that are much closer to home. Sickness and death and financial struggles and rebellious children and difficult marriages. Trials and temptations of various kinds. There's our own failures to control our sinful desires. And so this world and all of its brokenness so often just leaves us feeling so tired, weary, worn down. It It leaves us longing for the day when righteousness and justice fill the earth the day that we know is coming but that sometimes feels so very far away. And so the question that that I want to answer this morning is what does it look like to long for the day of the Lord in a way that honors the Lord? Now, I don't know how much stock you put in a sermon title. Maybe you look at it, maybe you don't. If you do, you see there, the title is Longing. If I had a do-over, and I do right now have a do-over, I would change that. because. And let me explain why. What we're doing in a sermon title is we're wanting to give you something, a word, a phrase, that gets at the essence of the sermon that's being preached. And if I'm doing my job, then that would be drawn straight from the point of the text that we have before us. And longing's a fine word. I think you'll see that. But rather, if I had it to do over again, it would be persistence. It would be endurance. It would be steadfastness. Because what we're going to come to at the end of this text is that the Lord in Christ has established His King who is righteous, and in him is established a kingdom that will not be shaken. And so therefore his people can remain steadfast, firm, unmoving, can persist in faithfulness. And so there's the sermon, and I guess we're done. So, no. Let's look at this together. Because you you come to a text like this, and if you're like me, you get to it, and you read it, And you go, okay, that is in the Bible. You might not have known that it was in the Bible until this morning, until you read it. And so I think there's the temptation to read it and just go, well, all right, that's there. Jesus is going to make all this better. And so I'm going to move on because I don't have the first idea what to do with it. And so... Maybe you're in that place, and if so, great. We've got a great starting point. Or maybe, and here's what I would love for us to be able to do, you know, if, as best you can. You can't do this perfectly because we know the end of the story. But try to put yourself in the place of someone who doesn't, who maybe picked up and started reading in Genesis 1-1 and has just been faithfully going, just a verse at a time, trucking along. Now think about that person when they get to the the end of this chapter. Because what have you seen if that's you? Well, you know by now that this world is corrupted because the first king, Adam, well, he failed, and he failed spectacularly. He plunged the whole world into chaos. But you also know that there is this promise that's been made, this promised seed of the woman who will come, who will crush the head of the serpent, and he will undo all that Adam undid and then when we got to david obviously there's a lot there we don't need to worry about that right now when we got to david it seemed like hey this might be the guy you know there's there's plenty of drama that led up to the coronation of david as king over israel We know that he was anointed as king, and then he spent all those years out wandering in the wilderness, being chased by the incumbent king, who was crazy, and trying to kill him. All right? And so he's out there being chased around, and what we learn from that is that, well, he's very different because he trusts the Lord. He trusts the Lord to keep his promises, and so he refused to touch Saul, even in those moments where it seems like the Lord had given Saul into his hand to be killed. He refused because he knew better than to touch the Lord's anointed. That was for the Lord to deal with. Well, and then even after Saul died, we see David patiently waiting seven more years through civil war to be king over Israel. You probably remember that. Saul's son Ishbosheth is set up as this puppet king under Abner as his general who is opposite of David, who's ruling over all the tribes of Israel except for Judah. Well, David patiently waits on the Lord. And even then, when some men kill Ishbosheth and come to David and say, Hey, look, we took care of the problem for you, what does he do? He puts them to death because they did not revere the Lord and touched Ishbosheth. We've seen David with Mephibosheth before him, another of Saul's descendants. And rather than overwhelming him with anger and with vengeance and with wrath, overwhelms him with kindness and grace and gentleness. We've seen the kindness of God, We've seen David seek to extend that out the borders of Israel, even to the nations around them, and subduing them when they reject him and reject the kindness of God. We know that David is the Lord's anointed king with whom he made a great and wonderful covenant. That David would have a son who would be like a son to God and God would be a father to him from whom the love of God would never depart. Who would establish David's throne forever. And so if you're reading this verse by verse for the first time ever, you've been trucking along and you're going, oh, this is great, this is wonderful, this is awesome, until it wasn't. David, just like Adam, saw what was forbidden to him and he took it for himself. To his sin with Bathsheba plunged his house and the kingdom into absolute chaos. And we've been reading through the aftermath of that for going on ten chapters now. And if I think if we're being honest, we're weary from it things just keep going from bad to worse. And even when it seems like things are about to turn around, they go sideways again. And that's where we're at this morning. And so the first thing we should see in the text is we've got a new rebel. So the text is is picking right back up. If you remember the text from last week, it's picking right back up where we left off in the very middle of this squabble between uh, the tribes of Israel and Judah. Now, Absalom, David's son who rebelled against him and tried to kill him, he has been deposed, he's been put away, and Israel uh, is now, has now said, well, we should bring David back. They seem to be okay. We'll, we'll bring him back. Well, David getting wind of it, reaches out to his own tribe, to Judah, and says, Hey guys, this is what Israel wants to do. Why am I not hearing that from you? You know, Michael pointed out, it's savvy, and it is also very unfortunate and an unwise political blunder. And so he does this. You have Judah that is escorting him back into Jerusalem when Israel shows up and they're like, i out. Why don't we get to be part of the entourage? What's going on? They get mad, Judah gets madder, and it results in a fight. And so we read this morning in verse 1 that there, at that place, in that moment, with that going on, was Sheba, the son of Bikri, And he is a worthless man. I'm calling him a worthless man. This lumps him in with a whole host of other worthless men that we have seen throughout First and 2 Samuel. Do you remember the sons of Eli? They were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. At Saul's anointing as king, there were worthless men who would not honor him as the king that the Lord had chosen for the nation of Israel. You had Nabal, who was a worthless man. And we know he's a worthless man because he had a servant that told us he was worthless, and his wife told us that he was worthless. And so all of them, in some fashion, have displayed disregard for the Lord and disregard for the Lord's anointed king. These were fools. These were wicked men. And Sheba has been lumped in right among them. And he's acting in accord with that foolishness and wickedness. So he sets himself now against the Lord's king by rejecting the Lord's king, saying to Israel, We have no portion in David. And we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. He's basically saying, hey, look guys, David does favor Judah over us. He doesn't want us. So, you know what? We don't want you either. Let's go. Let's get out of here. And that's what the men of Israel do. They depart with him. And look at how it describes it. This is, a, I think, a fun little wordplay that's going on there. It says, All the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri, but the men of Judah followed their king. That their king bit that I think is interesting. The Israelites in Sheba, in essence, have their king, the one that they're following, while Judah has theirs. And we can look at that. And it's abundantly clear that what Sheba is doing is no good. But we need to dig a little bit more below the surface to see just how wicked his actions are. Because what he's doing is leading the nation of Israel to break a covenant that they had made with David back in 2 Samuel 5. We read in 2 Samuel 5, 3, after the period of civil war uh, between Uh, the house of David and the house of Saul, that all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. So what's happening is the uniting of the people of God under the Lord's chosen king is being undone. But second, look at where Sheba is from, which tribe he belongs to. Sheba is a Benjaminite, the tribe of Saul. And so, what you've got, in essence, is a new Ishbosheth who's ready to set up a new regime opposite to David, who would be ruling in Judah. And so it's like everything that God has done for David in establishing him as king, we're starting to see layers rolled back. The scroll is going back upwards. So David, after this blow-up there at the Jordan, uh, returns to his home in Jerusalem. But what we see there, before he can even start to deal with with this new rebellion that is cropping up, he still has to pick up the pieces from the rebellion that just ended, that chased him out of town to begin with. We read that there are the, the ten ladies that David had left behind to keep the house. If you remember from chapter 16, these are the women that Absalom in accordance with the judgment of God on David, uh, took for himself before the sight of all of Israel to show that he was taking the throne from David, that there would be no peace between them. And so, upon his return, we read that David takes these women and he provides for them, but then he also puts them in a house, under guard. And now, when we we read there that he puts them under guard, what it seems like is happening is with a new rebellion that's already starting up, it seems like what he's doing is he's putting them away into safety as a means of preventing what happened before from happening to them again. And so, we can look at that. I think and acknowledge, okay, that his intentions perhaps are noble enough. He's seeking to protect them. But we would also look at it and go, yeah, that's too little too late. Where where was that the first go-round? And either way, regardless of his intentions... The result is what matters, is that they effectively are forced into widowhood, trapped under lock and key until the day of their death. I want you to look with me back at 2 Samuel eight fifteen, because I think this gives us some clarity into why this detail, this verse is included in the text. To begin with, because it seems, if we're being honest, it maybe seems a little out of place. 2 Samuel 8, 15 says, So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all the people. Now come back to verse 3 in chapter 20. See, I think the text is forcing us to ask the question, where's justice and equity now? They're suffering, and their suffering is through no fault of their own. Instead, what we have here is the ongoing fallout from David's own sins. So what you've got is David's come home. Woohoo! There's no rejoicing. There's no celebration. It's wartime for David, and it's a time of mourning. For these women. And what we're seeing in, in that is just how large the blast radius from sin can be. See, they're suffering, but not even just as a result of his one decision, his one sin with Bathsheba. See, this traces itself, and Michael's pointed this out, this traces itself all the way back to David's willingness to collect wives for himself, contrary to the Lord's designs for marriage that is established in Genesis 2 in the Garden of Eden. See, David had been acting like a fool for a long time as it related to gathering wives for himself. It wasn't just when he laid eyes on Bathsheba. But you can take that, and then you can follow that trail right on up to Sheba's rebellion. And now I want to be clear, Sheba's a worthless man and is guilty of his own sins. David is still the Lord's anointed, and the Lord's promise to David in his house, it still stands. And so Sheba, in his actions, has set himself against the Lord, has set himself against the Lord's king, and has set himself against the Lord's redemptive plans for his creation. That's true. But we do need to remember what God said to David as he was issuing judgment on him for what he did, both with Bathsheba and to Uriah, her husband. Second Samuel 12:9 through 10 says, You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. Remember, he had him murdered to try to cover up what he had done. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. Therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. So first, as we've been seeing, the sword severed peace in David's family, and now the sword is severing peace in all of Israel. So what's the point? Why do we need to know all this? Because what we're seeing is that David's reign has been diminished. It's been weakened. And it's happening because of the ongoing consequences of David's sin. Servants are suffering. Judah, the other tribes of Israel, they're on the brink of being divided once more. That obviously means the threat of yet another civil war. So David's back home. But things, they just aren't the same because his rule has been weakened. For us, this serves as a reminder of the destructive power of sin. See, sin lies to us in so many different ways. You know, sin comes to us, temptations come to us, and they promise us joy. They promise us peace. They promise us fulfillment. They promise us this, that, and the other. You know, they don't come to us and package themselves and say, actually, here's all the fallout. You know, click here and go on and destroy your marriage. You know, get even with this person over here and destroy that relationship and probably several others along with it. You know, why don't you share this piece of gossip because then you're going to destroy that person's reputation? Why don't you just lie on some paperwork because then you'll lose your job and you're going to take food out of your kids' mouths? Do this thing, you'll be incapacitated by your guilt and shame. That, that's just not what sin does. That's not how it comes to us. It promises pleasure, satisfaction, praise, promotion, and then fails spectacularly to deliver on those things. Wrecks havoc in our lives and in the lives of those near to us who feel the impact. That's what we're seeing with David. And we see it over and over throughout the Scriptures. So this is a warning for us regarding the horrific consequences of sin. so, friends, heed the warning. Resist the lie that comes with every temptation to sin. But then know that you can't do that in your own strength. See, realizing the destructive power of sin should force us to our knees pleading with God for help. Praying to the Lord for grace to resist the temptations that come our way. Praying for God to fill our minds with Scripture that remind us of the dangers of sin and the joys of knowing Him. Now David's next move, after putting away these women, is to address the situation that's created by Sheba. And we see that beginning there in verse 4. But as we read on, we come to find out that David has more than one rebel on his hands. He's got one in the palace as well. And so that's the second thing in the text. We've got an untrustworthy general. So, back in 19, David appeals to Judah, says, why haven't you tried to bring me back? We see as part of that... He replaces his general, Joab, with Amasa. It's kind of odd, because remember, Amasa was Absalom's general who was actively seeking David's death. Okay? That's what he did. We saw as perhaps an olive branch to Judah. Look, we forgive, we move on. So he's made him his general. And now David needs him to do his job. And what is his job? Rally the troops, three days, and be here with them yourself. And what does Amasa do? He goes out, and then he's delayed. Why is he delayed? I would love to know what happened in three days. Maybe this is just an unrealistic ask. Maybe it's just not possible for him to do what David has given him to do. Perhaps. Or, maybe he still wasn't super keen on David being king. And so, he's just going to take his dear sweet time and kind of see how things play out. Like Aaron Burr in Hamilton. Just keeping his plans close to his chest. Either way, he he don't make it. He don't get there in time. And that becomes a problem for David. So he turns to Abishai, one of his nephews. Now, you might note, he turns to Abishai, still not turning to Joab. And so he says to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. See, you, we remember that Absalom's rebellion, it was, it was, it was a slow burn. You know, over time, he built favor with the people. He stole the hearts of the people. And then even when he goes to openly declare himself as king, we were told that there's these 200 men that, that came out with him who had no idea what was going on. Whereas you have, and Absalom's goal was simply to depose David to take over the throne, not to divide Israel. That's what Sheba is doing. He's here to sever the nation, and potentially, which would isolate David and Judah once more. And so David says, we got to deal with this guy before he gets into a city. Remember that. Before he gets into a city and we can't, we can't get to him. So Abishai takes Joab's men, again, not Joab taking Joab's men, Abishai taking Joab's men, Carathites, the Pelethites, and David's mighty men. And, And so as they go out, Amasa finally shows up. And when he does, Joab approaches him. And so you and I, who are armed with the knowledge of the things that Joab has done in the past, are maybe looking at this and going, Amasa, buddy, run, be on guard. But what we read is that Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took him by the beard, took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him, disarming him by greeting him like a friend and then ruthlessly, brutally murdering him. And it's plainly obvious why he did, does this. The man wants his job back. He's going to be general, no matter what. Not even if the Lord's anointed king has decided otherwise. And so what we're noticing now is a pattern of behavior for Joab. He murdered Abner first. He killed Absalom against, the Lord's wishes, against uh, David's wishes a couple of chapters ago. And now And I don't mean this as an excuse for Joab's previous actions, especially the killing of Abner. But I think if we look at the text, we can see in the text reasoning why he did what he did. We, under, we understand it. Abner killed his brother Asahel, and so he's avenging his brother. Absalom intended to kill David, and we know that the Lord had intended harm against Absalom as well. But there's just not anything like that here. This killing is motivated purely by jealousy and a lust for power. Amasa has his job. He wants his job back. Doesn't matter what the king says. Doesn't matter what the king wants. Joab is going to do whatever Joab wants to do. And what he wants to do is command the Lord's army. So Amasa's got to go. Verse 11 paints a pretty clear picture of that. Joab has one of his cronies stand over the body and shout, Whoever favors Joab! Favors Joab. Whoever would rather follow after Joab, and well, come on. And so I ask the question: How is that all that different from Sheba in verse one, saying to Israel, "Come on, follow me." I also want you to notice how the names are ordered. Whoever favors Joab, and then. Whoever is for David. Why does Joab's name get pride of place? Is he the king? No. A young man seemingly wants to paint this as, Hey, you know what? Joab is David's man. So if you're for David, then you should favor Joab. But that wasn't the will of the king. He wasn't David's man. Amasa, at this point, was. And so by putting Joab's name first, the young man is giving away, giving it away. Joab is in charge. Now, I don't mean that as a suggestion that Joab has designs on taking the throne for himself. We don't see that suggested here. We don't see it suggested anywhere else. But what we do clearly see is that he had no interest in listening to the king's desires if the king's desires were opposite his own. But... David has not dealt with his defiance before. And so it seems that the lack of consequences have emboldened him. If David hasn't acted yet, why not push the envelope just a little bit more? Now, if you know what happens down the line, we know that this is eventually going to cost Joab his life. The murder of Abner and the murder of Amasa lead David to effectively tell Solomon, hey, you need to put him to death, which Solomon does. But for now, what you have is a rebellious general with, who completely disregards the wishes of his king if they don't suit him. And so what we see is that David's rule isn't only being undermined by rebellions happening outside of the palace. His rule is being undermined by rebellions happening within it as well. But Sheba does have to be dealt with, and so without missing a beat, off go Joab and Abishai. Glad that's done. However, Amasa gets in Joab's way one more time. The army keeps stopping to just stare at this grotesque picture before them. And so what does Joab's crony do? Drags the body off the road into a field, throws a sheet over it, and there. Problem solved. Joab's murderous act to retake control of the army is complete. And off they go. And so we get to the third point. We get to see a weakened king. See, verse 14 picks back up with Sheba. Sheba does make it inside a city, but Joab tracks him down. He has his troops build a siege mound against the city, and they start trying to take down the wall. But then in verse 16, we have this wise woman who enters into the fray, who starts calling out to Joab from the wall. And so we need to note then the bookends from one end of the chapter to the other. It begins with a worthless man leading a revolt against David, and it's going to close with a wise woman saving her city from untrustworthy and ruthless Joab. So getting his attention, she says, "...they used to say in former times, let them but ask counsel at Abel, and so they settled the matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel." You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? See, Abel was apparently a place where when there was disputes, people could come there and they would find wisdom and they would find counsel and they would see their problems resolved in a way that is peaceable. And she identifies herself as one such person who is able to handle big problems, who is able to handle disputes. And so she asks, these things being true, this is a city of the Lord that he has given to his people as an inheritance. Why are you here knocking on our walls? Why would you destroy a city that God has given to his covenant people? Joab's response is, I would never. But if you're like me, you look at that and go, yeah, you would? What are you talking about? But, as it stands, Joab's defense for himself is, Well, you've got w you've got a worthless man in there, and he's rebelled against the king. And so, I got You didn't open the door. I gotta get in somehow. I gotta get the man. And so the woman says to him, Verse 21, She keeps her head. Sheba doesn't. Says, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. And then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom. And they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So note again, the woman, in her wisdom, goes to the people, and just like that, problem solved. Sheba's head over the wall, Joab calling off the dogs, and away goes the army. What you have is a woman like Abigail who prevented David from killing Nabal and his whole house, which, if you remember, would have created issues for David. It would have undermined his ability to rule as king over the people and would have been him asserting himself, uh, seeking vengeance for himself, rather than trusting that to the Lord. Well, once again, you have the wise woman who is preventing harm from coming to David's reputation. We've already seen that David has said, if he gets into a city, then we can't get to him. I think the implication of that is that he doesn't intend for his general to raise an Israelite city to the ground to get their man. Well, Joab, who don't care what the king thinks when it goes against what he thinks, is willing to knock down walls and do whoever knows what else to get his man. And so what you have in Joab, in his actions, is a threat to bring even more uh, shame, disrepute, whatever, onto David's name because he was the one who sent out the army to get this man. And so in Abigail, or not in Abigail, but in this wise woman who's acting like Abigail, in her wisdom, what we see is not only does she save her city, but she keeps Joab from further damaging David's name and reputation. And so there's, I think, a bit of a paradox that's going on here. You've got David, who is, through his own sins, through his own failures, is weakening his rule. And at the same time, God, in his grace and in his kindness, ultimately in his faithfulness to his covenant promises, it's still sustaining the kingdom under David's rule. So, Sheba's rebellion is done. Joab is able to return to Jerusalem head in toe. Tell the king, crisis averted. But what about that deal with Absa- uh, Amasa? What happened with that? Well, you get these verses at the very end. And I think it would be easy for us to look at these verses, this listing of the cabinet positions under David, and be like, who cares? Why is this here? Well, verse 23 is actually really telling. See, we looked at 2 Samuel 8 earlier. I read a portion of that. Well, what comes after what I read is the exact same thing a detailing of the cabinet positions under David. You get something similar in 1 Kings 4, when Solomon becomes king. You get the names of his cabinet appointees as well. So, in part, what's happening here is the author is telling you David is king over Israel in Jerusalem once again. But there's a big difference in this text and those two other texts. See, in 2 Samuel 8... Remember what we read? It said, and David reigned over all Israel. In 1 Kings 4, it says, King Solomon was king over all Israel. But put your eyes on verse 23. Do you see that? I don't. All we get is now Joab was in command of all the army in Israel. So what did David do about Joab murdering Amasa? Amasa? And rejecting his authority, he gave him his job back. I mean, I guess if you come in toting the head of the other rebel, it covers for a lot of things. And so verse 23 actually serves as like someone letting the air out of a balloon. Yeah, David's back in Jerusalem. Yeah, he's the king, but he can't keep his rebellious general under control. And he doesn't even seem inclined to want to try. And so what is being emphasized is that his rule and his reign is severely diminished. What once seemed so hopeful is now just sad. It's kind of like David is just playing out the string here. I think after ten chapters of seeing the Horrific uh, uh, effects of a sin. I think we're supposed to feel a weariness, wondering you know, w- when when is this going to turn around, when is this going to get better? And you have to know, David Shirley was in that place himself, sitting on his throne, looking around, going, "God, you've made you've made great promises. I've made horrible mistakes. When?" When does this turn around? When does does this get better? The kingdom, it is still standing. But it sure seems wobbly, don't it? And this is significant because of who David is and what David represents. Remember, David is the tip of the spear of God's kingdom being thrust into the world. And so his failures as king and the weakening of his rule suggests that the kingdom of God is weakened. But establishing the rule of God was never dependent on the, fo- on the uh, faithfulness of fallen men. That's evident, I pointed out a moment ago, that even though David's rule is dis- diminished, that even though the kingdom is wobbly, it hasn't crumbled to the ground. See, the Lord has preserved him, and still has him on the throne. See, the surety of God's kingdom, its strength, it doesn't depend on David, it doesn't depend on Solomon, it doesn't depend on any other corrupted man who would take up the crown. God would and has established His kingdom in his own time, by his own power, according to his own will, in faithfulness to his covenant promises. And he's done this all through his son, Jesus. See, the kingdom of God has ultimately broken into this world in the coming of the new and the better David. See, under him, the kingdom of God is ruled by one who, unlike David was not overcome by sin. In him, the kingdom of God is fully and finally established by one who is perfectly righteous. And he reigns in righteousness now and forevermore. His reign will never weaken. His reign will never diminish. This was announced at his birth by the angel Gabriel. We see this in Luke 1, and 33. It says, He will be called great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to Him the throne of His father David. And He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of His kingdom there will be no end. In Christ the kingdom has come. In His righteousness it has been secured now and forevermore. And through His life, through His death, through His resurrection, He brings His people Those who trust in Him alone for their righteousness. Those who come to Him for salvation. Those who come to Him for the forgiveness of sins. He has brought those people, us, His church, into a kingdom that Hebrews 12.28 says cannot be shaken. He rescues everyone who trusts in Him for their righteousness from the kingdom of darkness And secures in his blood our position under his rule. He's a king who will never fail his people. Who will never fail at all. His kingdom will never wobble. Not at all. Because of any unrighteousness in him. Because there is none. In his perfect righteousness, the kingdom is secured now and forever. It will never diminish. Now some may look at the brokenness that exists in this world and come to the conclusion that he is in fact not reigning. Or, if he is, well, he's, he's a weak king. And maybe that's you. And so you take the attitude of Joab... Whatever you want to do, you're going to do, because he's not really ever going to do anything about it. And since he's not going to do anything about it, why would I care what he says? Why would I care who he is? And if that's the case for you, if that's where you are, let me urge you. Repent. The Lord's patience is not meant as an excuse for unrighteousness. The death and resurrection of Jesus show that the Lord can and will deal with sins. He's provided the only means by which any one of us may be saved through Christ, and also through Christ. He will bring judgment on every sin. And so don't turn away from Him. Turn to Him and find forgiveness for your sins. But now, Christian... This text for you is meant to remind you of your king whose rule and reign is perfect, established forever, and will not fade. And because his rule will not ever be weakened, those things that cause you so much weariness are actually means by which he is working for your eternal good. See, the weariness that you feel is meant to produce in you a longing for His reign to come in its fullness. For the rule of Christ to be established on a new earth, to be free from sin, to be free from death, where we enjoy His presence forever and ever. And longing for that day will produce steadfastness in those who come under the rule of Christ, who have been brought under it by the grace of God. James 1, 2-4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Christian, you can rest in the knowledge that God who has brought you into His kingdom uh, actually uses all of those things that make you weary to produce steadfastness in you. He uses all of it to increase our confidence in Christ's reign over the cosmos. He uses it all to increase our longing for the full experience of His reign. And so He uses it to keep us faithfully worshiping and serving Him in this world that He has made. So then, persistent faithfulness. Continue to faithfully and gladly submit to the rule of Christ in all of the mundane parts of life. Continue to persist in the faithfulness to the rule of Christ and the struggles of life continue to persist in the rule of Christ. Christian parents, keep being weird. Keep resisting all the pressures that we feel that are both inside and outside to raise kids that are well-rounded and good little agents of moral change in the world. Instead, push back on what this world says your kids must be and what you must be to make them well-rounded and devote yourself, as we heard this weekend, to raising them, to worship God. Christian husbands, continue to put your wife's interests before your own, loving her sacrificially as Christ loved His bride, the church, sacrificially and gave His life up for her. Christian wives continue to follow the leading of your husbands in a world that tells you the idea of submission is demeaning. Continue to faithfully trust that what the Lord prescribes in this word is good. Christian employees treat your coworkers with respect and kindness and forgiveness and gentleness, especially when they're hard and difficult to deal with. Listen to your bosses and do what they ask without grumbling and complaining. Continue to forgive those who wrong you. Continue to bear with one another. Continue to resist the temptation to gossip and slander, to count others' interests, count others' interests as more significant than your own. And all of our weakness, see our wariness would have us give in to all of the pressures around us, to despair to pursue all sorts of different sins. But Christian, you can be confident in the reign of Christ because our King is not a frail man given to the temptations of the flesh, but He is one who is tempted in every way as we are yet without sin, who has suffered the wrath that we deserved, who has died in our place, who has been raised from the dead, who is righteous, who has passed through the heavens and is seated at the right hand of the Father where He rules and reigns, over the cosmos, from which He will come again someday to judge the living and the dead, and to establish the new heavens and the new earth on which His people will dwell with Him, seeing His face always and forever, where there will be no more sorrow. And that confidence, Christian, remain steadfast and unwavering in your faithfulness to Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You keep us, There is no persisting in the faith unless you do. And so we ask that you would, that you would keep us in your love as you promised to do in your word. We pray help us to put away sins and desires for sins as we look to the things of this world to soothe ourselves when we're weary, when we're tired of all the brokenness that is in it. We pray, Lord, that you would sustain us in righteousness, that we would bring glory to you, for you alone are worthy of all praise. So God be a help to us. Amen.
1: Thanks for listening.
0: If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 1030 and Wednesday nights at 615.